You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. If you would remain standing for this reading from James chapter 1, starting in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trial of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If any one of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. But ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can find your seats. Wow, it's so great today to welcome you to First Christian. We are pleased that you are here. It's a delight to welcome friends new and old into this time of worship together. Well, those of you that might not know me may not know that I I love books. I like books a lot. And I like one particular thing about a book other than the inside. It's the dust jacket. And this is not just because books get cold and they need jackets. It's because the dust jacket, it provides a protection for the book. And if you look really closely, it's got the full title and the author. Sometimes on the front, you you can find out maybe a little quote from some other author that's recommending this book. And I like looking whenever maybe one of you recommends a book or whenever I spot a book that I might be interested in. I like to spend a little time looking at the front flipping over to the back, maybe reading about that book and who endorses it, and getting a sense of the the flavor or the the story of the book, of where it's going. And yes, I'll even open up and look at the intro and read the preface. And if you really want to get the story, then looking at the table of contents lets you know where this book is going. It gives you that trajectory, that story as it unfolds. Now, most of you may not know that the Bible is not just a book. It's a library of books. The Bible doesn't just have one dust jacket. It has many. And some of you would be like, okay, yeah, I know that. I know that there's some collections in there. But how often do we pay attention to the dust jacket of the New Testament, that collection? You're like, yeah, 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 I know. We've got the four Gospels that start things out. And there's the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles that comes next. And then, then the letters, of Rome, letters from Paul that starts with Romans and on and on and on. Yes, I know that that's the case, Brady. Well, I don't think people really, even believers, know what I'm about to tell you. That this book of the New Testament is written primarily by doubters. That's right. It's written by outsiders to the faith interrogators, investigators of the faith. More than 50% of the New Testament is written by those who, when Jesus was alive, they didn't believe in him at all. You see, Jesus was this renegade Jew who came on the inside of Judaism and 
destroyed it from the inside out. Now, he would say completed it, made it fulfilled, but he transformed this faith in God from the inside out. And the people who are writing about him are primarily outsiders, deniers, doubters, disbelievers. I mean, just think about it. Paul, the rabbi who was ready to kill people who were not who were followers of Jesus, put people in prison, did not believe in Jesus while Jesus was alive. Or, or what about Luke, the, the doctor, who is kind of gathering up together first account, eyewitness accounts. He himself is an investigator, not a believer at the time whenever Jesus walked the earth. Or maybe you say, well, there's some in there that are believers. Yeah, like Matthew or, or Peter or John, who are actual apostles. But then there's people like Mark, In Mark's gospel account, Mark was nothing but a young man, and he kind of writes himself into the story when everyone's running away from Jesus, and there's a young man who somebody grabs a hold of his clothes at night, takes him off, and he runs away naked. Then there are two, two, two brothers of Jesus who each wrote letters who did not believe in Jesus. Now, just think about that for a minute. His own brothers didn't believe that he was the son of God. And and when I look at that, it makes some sense. But maybe you don't even believe me that Jesus' own brothers weren't believers. Well, look at the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 1 through 5. You don't have to go there now. We're not spending time there. But you can go back and look. And here's what his brothers did to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, we know you're a Messiah, You know what good messiahs do? They go up to Jerusalem. That's what you need to do. So run along, Jesus. Jesus has to put up with that kind of teasing and ribbing from his own brothers. It's not just that story. It's in every gospel account. In Mark chapter 3, in Luke 8, in Matthew 12, all of them have this story, and there's multiple stories, where Jesus, by his own family, his mother, his brothers, his sisters, they all think he's, write this down, bat crazy because he's claiming to be the son of God. He's claiming to be this Messiah figure and they knew him and they knew he was not that and they didn't believe in him. I wonder what it was like to grow up with Jesus as your brother. Did the rest of the family kind of look at you crosswise except for your mom? Maybe because you look a little different Now, if you're a believer in Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit, then that makes Jesus only a half-brother of these other siblings, right? So does he just look like his mom? Don't worry, I'm not going down this speculative course of DNA splitting and figuring out embryos. That's just speculation. I'm not going there. But I think Jesus knows what it's like to maybe not fit inside of your own family. Some of you might feel that, where you're the child of the affair, of the other marriage. You're the adopted in child. You're the one that doesn't quite fit, and so you don't, you don't know if you fit in your own family. Jesus himself can relate to that, because I know something had to be thought of inside of that family about wondering if he really was a part of the family. So I'm reading the dust jacket of this book, and I'm really interested because it's got these books from Jesus' brothers. And we're talking about how half the New Testament is written by people who don't even believe. 
who don't believe until, until they see with their own eyes Jesus executed, hung up on a cross, until they witness him being put inside of a tomb, hidden behind a stone, locked away. It's not until that time, whenever Jesus is resurrected and begins to appear to these brothers, that things change. So Paul, the guy that would kill people who believed in Jesus, the guy who was a rabbi intent on stamping out Christianity, well, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 7, gives us this description of the resurrection, and he's listing off people by name and uh, groups of people that have Jesus appear to them. And in verse 7, do you know what he adds in at the very end? He appeared to so-and-so and so-and-so and to James. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine that? Your brother appearing to you. I would love to have a really long weekend with James and say, what was that like? All the teasing, all the ribbing, all the doubting, and then you see the brother that you know is dead appearing to you as the son of God, as king. Tell me just a little bit about that, James. What was that like? I get chills thinking about the life transformation the rebalance of what that family looks like in seeing Jesus resurrected appearing to James. It's crazy. Because now, when James signs this letter, did you notice how he signed the letter in verse 1? Yeah, I know it's kind of weird. He signs at the beginning. Old letters, okay? Think of it as the, the letter, the return address. James, a servant of God, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. No mention of being a brother of Jesus. Neither James nor Jude drop, oh yeah, I'm a brother of Jesus. I mean, it seems like that would be a good way to go about it. If you're trying to sell books or letters or get people to read it, to just drop a little family clout. No, the dynamic has changed because this one is the Lord. This one is the Christ, the Messiah. This is the one over all who was before and in the beginning of time. And so we have this story, a story of seeing Jesus in a new way, where teasing brothers become, well, believers, trusting servants, those who want to be around Jesus. Now this dust jacket, I think it has some burn marks on it. I think it's been battered. I think it's been beaten. It's been bedraggled. And so as I look a little deeper into the book and I open it up, like maybe you have, there are sections that catch my attention because I'm trying to decide whether or not I want to pay attention to James for the next several weeks. So I pick it up and I look at verse 2, the first paragraph. Maybe you see there, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face a trial of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. Uh, it's at this point that I kind of look to the left and right and say, any trial of any kind, consider it pure joy. And so I just kind of close the book and I put it back up on the shelf and I begin to walk away. This is not the book I want to read. I don't want someone telling me an un-American idea that Christianity is about being joyful in trial and testing. Uh-uh. 
And then I think, well, wait, let me check that again. And so I look at the second paragraph, and you can look with me at verse 5. If any of you is lacking wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all ungrudgingly. And so here, we have this invitation here in the table of contents, these verses that, that summarize and encapsulate what James is all about. Pure joy whenever you face trial of any kind, paragraph one. And paragraph two, if you lack wisdom, ask God and God will give it to you. Wait, anyone? Yeah, anyone. Doubter, disbeliever, interrogator of Jesus. Ask for wisdom and God will give it to you. And you're like, oh, Brady, I don't know that you know me. God's not really going to give me wisdom, is he? Surely not. No. God offers to give you wisdom. Now, this whole book, this whole series that we're enjoying together today, that we get started on, hinges on whether or not we're willing to pick it up and take a look. Are you ready? Are you at least interested and intrigued enough to know about this one who writes about Jesus? I hope so. The way that I want to look at it today was, is two words. Faith and lack. Faith and lack are words that show up in paragraph number one and also in paragraph number two. And that's the way that I think James pulls this little table of contents together and holds it for us. And so we're going to look at faith first in this first section. The words appear in both paragraphs. But faith shows up, and, and if you've been around first, you, you know how I like to define faith. Now, usually we, what we first hear when we hear the word faith is Doctrine, bullet points, teachings, kind of black and white type things. We definitely have that. In fact, check out our We Believe page on our website and you will see substantive, serious beliefs. And that, that's one way to talk about faith. But again, if you've been around first, then you know I give the full definition of faith, of trusting, of relying upon. Because there's something that's a step more. You know, a lot of times we trust our faith about God, beliefs that we have in God, more than we actually trust and rely in God, in God's self. Does that make sense? In fact, we're more focused on our crystallized understandings, and we almost worship them as a God than we are relying upon the God that's beyond every box, beyond our ability to contain God at all. So it's about putting our faith in God, not putting our faith or our reliance in things about God, a canyon of difference between those two. And it takes some humility to be able to say that what I believe about God is not one and the same with God. And that allows us in every generation to ask tough questions because a lot of us evangelicals are sometimes pretty black and white. Well, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And then someone squints at us and says, well, do you believe the polygamous marriages of David, of Abraham? And we have to say, well, well faith in certain things challenges us because sometimes we put our faith in beliefs and not our faith in God. Okay, so we've just been looking at faith. And I know I'm going kind of fast here, but there's a second part of this faith that I want to go down a little deeper. Here's the point. Faith becomes faith when it's tested. Faith becomes faith when it's tested. Now that's very un-American because we don't want to think about faith having anything to do with being tried 
or suffer or troubled or tested or to have any difficulty at all. And you say, it's just not fair, Brady. You don't understand. To say something like that to me, faith becomes faith when it's tested. It doesn't fit. I mean, I've got a parent, you say to me. My parent is verbally abusive to me. They're absent. The only time they're ever present is when they're just a sore-sided in my ribs. And I don't want anything to do with them. You don't understand. Other people have normal parents, Brady, but mine, I don't like. Or you say to me, Brady, it's unfair. My kid's gone to the same schools, been on the same block, gone to the same churches as everybody else, but they've had to struggle so hard in school with grades. It's not fair, Brady. It's not fair at all. Well, I want you to think about whatever trial, whatever suffering that you're going through, because this is something that we are to offer to God. Example, think about it in your own mind about what you're going through right now that's your biggest test right now. And yet, Paul, and yet James says to us, joy in every trial, whenever you face any trial, Yes, tested faith produces endurance. And endurance produces maturity where you lack nothing. So we've got our two words in that first paragraph. Faith, when tested, will bring you to the point of lacking nothing. Now, it's not without difficulty. And yet, in our lives, we kind of want life to be without difficulty. We're like, God, would you just take away the issue that I'm facing right now where my friend committed suicide? Take away the issue from me of not having a spouse any longer. Take away the burden of this disease. God, just remove it. I don't want this difficulty at all. Why do I have to deal with a homeless person having stolen my car? It's not fair. Well, faith doesn't become faith until it's tested. Eugene Peterson, who writes the message version, I like the way he renders this, is that under pressure, faith comes out and reveals its true colors. Whenever we have experiences where faith is tested, these trials that we have to go through, J.B. Phillips in his translation says, it's kind of like we treat them as enemies or someone that shows up into your house and they start sleeping in your own bed. It's just kind of grime in there and it smells funny. And they're using your shower. It's like an unwelcome guest in your home. There's, there's dirt down in the bottom of your tub that you have to clean out. And we treat trials kind of like that, like an unwelcomed enemy in our house. And James is saying, treat those as a friend. Invite them in. Welcome them. Because there are things that you cannot learn unless you go through difficulties and trials. And instead, what we tend to do is, well, we're just going to numb ourselves to any difficulty that we're going right now. We're going to inject entertainment into our eyes. We're going to ingest whatever can numb or soothe us. We're going to hold our phones in our hands and try to escape from what's going on. But here again, what I'm saying, faith becomes faith when it's tested. All right, well, that's the first paragraph that we looked at. And it's probably easy for us to now say, well, how? How in the world are we supposed to go through this, James? 
What are you going to tell us in the second paragraph? And again, I'm telling you there's these two words that show up, faith and lack. And this time, we get lack first. So in verse 5, if any of you are lacking wisdom, ask God. If you're lacking understanding about something in your life, and I want you to think about what that might be, and you want to know an answer to why you're going through this divorce, why you're going through this grieving process of death, ask God. In fact, I'm going to do something really uncomfortable. I'm going to invite you to think about this biggest suffering, and I'm going to be silent. I'm just going to stare at you awkwardly. Some said I might be like Mitch McConnell, but no. I'm going to stare at you awkwardly, and I want you to think about your biggest suffering, your biggest struggle right now, and I want you to phrase it like James says. Ask God, God, would you give me wisdom about We are being invited to pitch our question to God. And what James says is that that God gives wisdom generously, ungrudgingly, and to all people. All? Yes, everyone. Doubters, disbelievers, those that are not wanting anything to do with God. God, if you will ask, will grant you wisdom. Well, here's what I want you to think about. There's a couple of conditions, and one of them is that you actually ask. You know, that's why I gave you that awkward, silent moment to really think. It's a chance. Maybe you did it, maybe you didn't. You probably just stared awkwardly back at me, didn't you? You didn't think about anything at all. But we have to actually ask it of God, because God is generous and gives to all ungrudgingly. Uh, Have you ever been given something kind of grudgingly? With a little bit of condon, condensate, not condensation, not moisture. <laughs> I'm going to have to do an Elmer Fudd moment, right? So it's like this. It's like the woman in the Mercedes shows up and sees you. Imagine yourself as a homeless person. And she's in this pristine Mercedes, and she drops a $20 bill in you into your hand and says, Get off the street. Take a bath. Get a job. Do you, do you feel the condescension? There you go, I got it. Just the looking down, the expectation. And we sometimes think that's what God's going to do. Oh, him, her, again. No, God gives generously, ungrudgingly to all, even a James who was resistant to Jesus. You know, Jesus was very patient with his brothers. He was patient with his mom. He was hard on them. Because when they were calling him back crazy, he just stood and looked at the people and he said, do you want to know who my real family is? My real family are those who do the will of my father. Okay, so Jesus is hard on his family, but he's also very patient because he's pulling them back into relationship. One thing that you can take out the door today is this gift where God will give you wisdom if you will ask. That's condition number one, that you will take the initiative to ask. There's a second condition, and that condition is to ask in faith. All right, there's our words again. If you lack wisdom, ask in faith. Don't doubt, trust. Now, again, this is this idea of relying upon. We're we're opening up our eyes, and we're trusting that God will provide what it is we're asking. 
And you might say, well, is that faith that we're supposed to have like this doctrinal bullet point faith? I don't know. I mean, what is it that you asked in that moment? Are you asking God to bless your pyramid scheme to open up casinos so that you can win a Ferrari and drive over your enemy? Well, okay, so maybe you might need some scriptural insight. You might need some spiritual insight. You might even just need some plain old ethical insight. So yes, there might be that kind of faith that's more bullet point. But we're also inviting a kind of faith where you ask and you trust. You begin looking for God's answer to this. Now, a lot of us don't do this. We'll, we'll ask God for things and then we'll say, ah, he's not really going to do it. And we just kind of worry our prayers forward. We don't really believe. And when the answers come, we're like, well, you know, I actually got the raise myself. Or, yeah, I I pounded the pavement. I got the job. Well, I mean, the doctor provided that medicine. And when we ask for something significant and then the answer comes and we don't credit God, that's going to be on us. I'm asking us to open up our eyes and invite God trusting and relying upon God to act and to move. Whenever we don't trust, it's kind of like we have this divided mind. We're following different rulers. We're not giving God a shot. We're trusting our own ingenuity, our own intellect, our own inventiveness to get something done. In fact, we're trusting ourselves. Well, I think it's probably time for a deep breath here. We've covered a lot of ground of looking at just a couple of paragraphs that is, for me, kind of the table of contents. But it's a journey that I think is really worth having because we've got this guy, James, who's a brother of Jesus who makes a very long journey of being a doubter, to being a believer, to being one who writes words like, don't be a wave whipped on the winds, but be single-minded in focus. To this one who has some radical transformation. James, Jude, his brothers, his mother, they all have some kind of a radical transformation. In fact, it even gets noted in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Right after Jesus has died, there's evidence of him appearing to people. And the apostles are trying to figure out what's going on. And they're gathered in a room. And do you know who's there praying with them? Jesus' mother and Jesus' brothers. That's what Acts 1.14 says, that he's there. They're there. Something has changed. Something has been transformed. Something mighty changed in James, where he is the preeminent voice of the apostles, of the New Testament church, the pillar. Now think about that. Do you remember how vocal Peter was as an apostle? Very vocal. Do you know who everyone listened to after the resurrection? It was James, the brother of Jesus. They listened to this voice. Now, the part of the story that I'll tell you that's not in Scripture, that's tradition, and this is the way I want to close, is what actually happened at the end of that transformation. In A.D. 61, after James had written this, maybe a decade earlier, The scribes, the Pharisees, the Jews saw James as a transgressor of the law, no longer a real Jew. He was a follower of Jesus. And so what they did is they took him up to the pinnacle of the temple and they said, renounce Jesus, deny him. And what James said is not, he's my brother. Nope, 
He said Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so what they did was they shoved him off the top of the pinnacle of the temple and he fell. He didn't die from the fall. And so they came and they clubbed him with clubs until he did die. This one who went from teasing his brother Jesus to being able to confess him at the pinnacle of the temple when everyone wanted him to recant, that is a doubter whose story I'm impressed by. I at very least have to pay attention to it because it's astounding. As one of the many voices of the New Testament, more than half, who brought their doubts into the presence of Jesus, and Jesus ascended as Lord and Christ and King Overall, let's pray. God, we come before you as people going through a lot, a lot more than we can express. Some things get shared as public prayers, and some are just too private to even share. And Father, we ask that you will teach us over these next weeks through James. Teach us what it is to live in the likeness of your son, Jesus. Help us to know what it is to have faith. And that when we lack anything at all, if we lack wisdom, teach us what it is to rely upon you. To let you take control of our lives and lead us into places that we never could have imagined. Into new places where only you can guide. We ask all this through Jesus who lives, who reigns with you and the Holy Spirit as one God, now and forever. Amen.